Welcome to All There Is. I'm your host, Kelly Bargabas. Thanks for tuning in today. Today's episode is titled Hippie Jesus Freaks. And over the weekend, I saw the new movie that's out right now. It's called Jesus Revolution, and it has Kelsey Grammer in it and some other great actors. I apologize. I can't think of any of their names right now. But I've been really excited to see this movie, Jesus Revolution, because, well, you'll you'll figure out why a little as I continue talking, but I knew that it would resonate and remind me of my childhood. I was right. It really did. I was pretty emotional throughout the whole movie. I was pretty tearful because it just reminded me of a time when I was a little girl that I didn't know it then, and maybe I did on some level know it, but just reminded me of how drastically my life trajectory changed in a very powerful way because of the Jesus revolution that was making its way across the country. And when it finally made its way to upstate New York, it had a major impact on my family that changed everything for all of us. But this movie, if you haven't heard about it, it tells the story of when the hippie counterculture collided with the radical teachings of Jesus. These teachings were centered on love, acceptance, freedom, and a new life. The movement shocked everyone when these long-haired, barefooted radicals put down the drugs and destructive aspects of the hippie life and embraced a different way. Searching for love, they found the ultimate love in Jesus. Maybe it's because I was born in the summer of love, 1967, but I've always envied hippies and sometimes wondered if it was too late to become a hippie. Too late, or perhaps I was just born too late. Their cultural influence was imprinted on my childhood. My favorite sleeping bag was soft, and it was yellow, and it had a pattern of all these different signs of the times on it. There were peace signs, make love, not war, give peace a chance, flowers and daisies. This was a repeating pattern around my childhood sleeping bag, and I love that thing so much. I had a transistor radio, a round transistor radio that hung around my neck with a big silver chain, and it had a a tree on the cover of it in the shape of a peace sign, and I love that too. If you don't know, the term hippie actually originates from the word hipster, given to the new generation of beatniks that took over San Francisco in the 60s. And on July 7th, Time Magazine featured a cover story entitled, The Hippies, The Philosophy of a Subculture. The article described the guidelines of the hippie code. Do your own thing, wherever you have to do it and whenever you want. Drop out. Leave society as you have known it. Leave it completely, utterly. Blow the mind of every straight person you can reach. They called people squares, right? Anybody who wasn't a hippie was a square, especially if you worked a nine-to-five job and, you know, didn't party. The culture encouraged people to turn on, if not to drugs, then to beauty, love, honesty, fun. And it's estimated that about 100,000 people traveled to San Francisco in the summer of 1967. And the media was right behind them, casting a spotlight on the Haight-Ashbury district, popularizing the hippie label. And with this increased attention, hippies found support for their ideals of love and peace. But they were also criticized for their anti-work, pro-drug, and permissive culture. So what was it about this lifestyle that made me crave it? If the answer to my question is it too late to become a hippie was no, Kelly, go right ahead, be a hippie. What would that look like? Who would I become? What would I change today? 
Would I bring back the lingo and start using far out, man, groovy? I think what I really crave is the free-spiritedness, not caring what people think or about societal norms. What are people going to think if I drive a Chevy instead of a Lexus? Or what are people going to think about what I look like or how much I weigh? And two years ago, stop dyeing my hair and covering up my gray hair that I've been doing since I was in my early 30s. And I stopped doing it two years ago. I was just tired of it. Tired of the, the stress and the rat race of trying to make sure your gray roots are covered up so nobody knows that you have gray. And I just wanted to lay that down. And it was really hard. You know, I was very conflicted about it because of the societal norms and worrying about what people would think and what I would look like and how people would judge me, what they would assume about me, all of that. And so I think this thing about me craving that hippie lifestyle is craving not caring about all that. And I'm happy to report almost two years later, embrace my natural hair color. I'm used to it now. I'm happy I did it. I'm really happy with my decision. It's given me some peace in an area of my life that used to stress me out. And I do still get, you know, I am insecure about it still, but I'm working on it. So I think what I crave about that hippie lifestyle is not having that burden of of worrying about what people think, right? Taking a job where maybe I earn less or have a lower title, but I absolutely love what I do. Living a lifestyle where I don't let the anger and toxicity of other people get me down. You know what I mean? So when I say I used to wonder if it was too late to become a hippie, I think it's all those things that I was kind of craving. Now, my parents were not hippies in the traditional sense of hanging out at music festivals, dropping out, turning on, tuning out. They were busy raising their family when the movement really heated up. And like I said, I was born in 1967. So when everybody was moving to hate Ashbury, you know, my, my parents were, were raising and having babies and my dad was working and my mom was trying to create a home and a life for their family. And those years were not easy ones. My dad's drinking had almost killed both of them and their marriage. My dad's doctor told him that his 35-year-old liver had cirrhosis so severe that one more drink of gin could kill him. And my dad took another shot of gin just to see if the doctor really knew what he was talking about, I guess, and landed in the hospital. I was six or seven years old at this time, and my mother took all of us kids to visit him. They didn't let kids visit in patient rooms back then, so we waited downstairs in the waiting room. And I remember the nurse wheeled him into the waiting room, and we stood up so we could get a better look at him lying flat out on the stretcher. I don't remember what we said to him or if we even talked at all. My father was a handsome man with brown hair parted on the side that was usually neatly combed. He had blue eyes that crinkled when he smiled, a strong jaw and nose that fit just right on his face. That day in the waiting room, I wanted to memorize my father's face, as pale as the gown he wore, in case it was the last time I saw him. He survived that trip to the hospital, but they both knew time was running out for them. They hated each other, hated who they had become, both threatening to leave the other, but neither one ever did. Then one summer night in 1975 at a Methodist church camp, they found God, or he found them. I tell this story in my memoir, Chasing the Merry-Go-Round, and I'm reading an excerpt from that memoir right now. Camp Aldersgate rested on a small lake in the woods. There was a dining hall, community room, and a small chapel set apart at the end of a grassy road. Cabins were spread across the property with names like Balsam, Spruce, and Hemlock nailed to the front door on wooden signs. 
My parents thought this weekend retreat at the church camp would be a good idea for all of us. A different scene, at least. We swam in the lake and played games in the woods. In the afternoon, families would square dance. At night, teenagers babysat the younger kids while the adults danced without us. At the center of the campground was a large pit. Grassy banks, sloped perfectly for theater-style seating, surrounded a circle of rocks that contained the campfire. There were always a few guitars and people to play them. We sang silly songs with funny voices and endless rounds of Michael Row the Boat Ashore before moving on to the more serious songs. Kumbaya, the old spiritual that means come by here, was always the encore, and no one left until all verses had been exhausted. Someone's crying, Lord, kumbaya. The youngest kids would fall asleep, their heads in the laps of an older brother, sister, or babysitter. Someone singing, Lord, kumbaya. The dance had ended by now. Parents came to stumble among us in the dark, finding their kids by the light of the fire. Someone's praying, Lord, kumbaya. And when the last verse was nearing the end, someone would shout out a new one they improvised. The end of the song signaled the end of the night, and no one wanted to leave the warm embrace of the golden orange fire or the comfort of asking God to come by here. Oh, Lord, kumbaya. A guest speaker was scheduled for the service on Saturday night. My mother had arrived early to help Reverend Hicks with the setup. Her face relaxed and she moved quickly, happy to have something useful to do. She and my father had one of their worst fights ever in our cabin that morning. I don't know what they fought about. Maybe it was another bar tab that took his paycheck or the misery of pretending we belonged at this place with the other families, but he promised divorce for sure. My mother later told me that as they prepared for that night's special service, Reverend Hicks and my mother had discussed the guest speaker. There were rumors. Apparently, he was part of a new trend, but getting saved was not something the Reverend was comfortable with. Reverend Hicks was not a fan of the Jesus Freak movement and preferred to keep things traditional and more predictable. I don't want that Holy Spirit stuff anywhere near my service, he said. You would never catch me at this altar, my mother said. When they were done, the room where we square danced the day before was lined with neat rows of folding chairs, a temporary altar and pulpit at the front. I don't remember what the speaker said that night, but the service seemed to go on forever. I knew it was creeping past my bedtime, but I didn't care, and I was determined to not look tired. I was going into third grade in the fall and felt I should be able to stay up later. My mom sat at the end of our row on the center aisle, my dad next to her, the four of us in order of age to the left. I was between my two sisters. As the service came to an end, the speaker closed his Bible and walked to the front of the pulpit, looking out at the audience. He had a smooth face with kind eyes and a smile that made you trust him. Someone I couldn't see began to play the piano. We picked up our hymnals to find the right page as the crowd began to sing, Just As I Am. The room was still, except for the soft, earnest singing and the speaker talking in the quietest voice he had used all evening. He paused in his speech, standing still at the front, eyes open, eyes closed, looking at the crowd, looking up like he was waiting for something. A strange sound came out from my mother. I looked over. We all did. 
She was sobbing, shoulders up and down, gut in and out, tears and snot streaming down her beet-red face. When I looked again, her hymnal was on her chair, and she was at the front of the room, the first one at the altar. She told me later that it felt like someone took the hymnal from her, placed a hand on her shoulder, and guided her up the aisle. Other people left their seats and walked to the front of the room. Some of them began to kneel. Our mother continued to sob louder than anyone else. We looked to our right to see what our dad was doing, our eyes and faces shouting at him, Go after her! She needs help! Can't you see she's crying? Other people in the room turned toward him, asking the same questions with their eyes. He didn't look at us. I'm sure he wanted to have one of his temper tantrums right there, pick up a folding chair and throw it, storm out, and slam the door. He was obviously annoyed at the spectacle my mother was creating. We waited, looking at him and each other, until he caved to the pressure. My mother told me later that when he met her at the altar, he said, You will pay for this. You have embarrassed me, and you will pay. The truth is, something had to change soon, or one or both of them would be dead, and the family they had tried to create would be destroyed. So on that warm July night in 1975, my parents had nowhere else to go but to that altar. When the speaker asked if he could pray with them, they surrendered. We stayed in our seats and watched what was happening at the front of the room. The sky didn't open up. The ground didn't shake. There was no circle of light over their heads, and there was no voice from heaven telling us that everything was going to be okay. I wasn't sure at that time what it all meant, but somehow knew that it was significant. The details of this scene are embedded deeper in my memory than my own first trip to the altar months later. When they were done, my mother looked the same. My father left the altar, found a hiding spot outside by the fireplace, and smoked a cigarette. After that night, my parents made new friends and attended Bible studies and church services. They began to hold hands again. Sometimes when we were riding in the car, their arms would stretch across the open space between their seats, their hands resting together on the console. I'm sure my parents felt like they were getting a second chance to get things right. And on rainy Saturday afternoons when my father got out of work early, normally a perfect day to hide from my mother and drink, he drove by his favorite gin mills with pickup trucks he recognized in the parking lot and realized he hadn't thought about drinking since that night at the altar. He was able to keep on driving. He never drank again. After that night, I didn't lie in my bed anymore and listen to the noise of a marriage shattering and wonder what it would be like if my mother moved out or my father took that last shot of gin. I didn't have to ask God to make it stop anymore. He already did. So that's my story of when the hippie Jesus Freak movement collided with my family and changed the trajectory of my family. I was on my way to become, at the very least, probably the child of divorce. I think I probably would have lost my dad completely, and I would have been an orphan raised without a dad. I don't know what would have happened to my mom. If she would have married someone new, if we... I just don't know what would have become of us. We, My parents didn't have a hefty support network around them to help take care of us. And so I know that that night at the altar in 1975 when my parents met Jesus, it changed everything. And I am still, all these years later, the most thankful for that miracle that God gave my family on that night. And so that is why I knew before I even sat in the movie theater, how I would feel seeing Jesus' revolution. And I was right. Like I said, I was weepy through the whole thing. 
the message, the way they dressed, the way the big Bibles with the leather covers and the dove emblem. My mom had a silver pin of that dove emblem and the music and the church services where we sat on the floor barefoot and just sang and loved and were open and happy and just glad to be there with each other sharing this human experience. The scene that got me the most in this movie was the very first baptism scene in the ocean when they were baptizing hundreds of kids and teenagers and young adults. And, you know, we we were baptized. We weren't near the ocean because we're in central New York, but we were baptized in a lake. We went to long church services and we sat on the floor and we listened to this new music with guitars and instruments and people carrying their Bibles to church and holding them up and wearing big wooden crosses on leather strands. And it was a real thing. And so for me, it makes perfect sense that these two cultures collided in such a powerful way. Hippies were searching for truth, love, peace. We're all are welcome and not judged. We're all are accepted as they are. Jesus offered all of those things and still does. I know that this podcast episode may not resonate with everyone. You may worship a different God. You may not worship any God. You may not be interested. You may think that Christians of today have perverted the message of the Jesus movement, and certainly some sectors have done that. But I can tell you that the very real message of Jesus saved my family. So wherever you're at, whether you are a hippie, want to be a hippie, think their hippies are ridiculous and don't care, wherever you're at in your search, whatever it is that you're searching for, whether it's truth, whether it's love, whether it's peace, whether it's family, whether it's freedom, whatever it is that's burning in you, that hole that you're trying to fill, I hope you find it. That is my wish for you and for everyone who's listening. You know this podcast is about sharing the human experience so that we can connect and shift paradigms and just experience humanity together and make the world a smaller place. So thank you for tuning in today. I appreciate you. You can go to kellybargabas.com. You can listen to past episodes. They're all out there. You can also find them on Amazon, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, anywhere that podcasts can be found, Spotify. And you can find Chasing the Merry-Go-Round, my memoir on Amazon, along with a couple of other books that I've written. And until we meet again, I hope everything for you is groovy. I hope it's far out. Take care. <laughs>